the Study Smarter series, and this message is brought to you by StatMed Learning. You ever wonder why you do volumes and volumes and volumes of questions, but your average doesn't seem to improve? Well, stay tuned to hear from Ryan Orwig, founder of the STAT program, on how you can improve this and get better with our StatMed lesson. And now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, Study Smarter series. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Before we get into the second part of our biochemistry discussion, focused this time on collagen vascular disease, I wanted to take a moment to really make an appeal to you from my heart. Since everyone is gearing up for boards, I wanted to take the time to ask for a favor. And I know we ask kind of a lot of favors, and we really are thankful for those of you that have supported us with reviews, ratings, likes, and sharing us on social media. But even still, there are a lot of medical students that just don't know that we are a free resource sitting on their phone that they could take advantage of when they aren't actively studying. We think those students should hear about us, and because of that, we're starting up the ITB Ambassador Program. If you check out the show notes, you'll find a link to a simple form where you can get involved. And I know what you're saying. I don't have time for this right now. I'm a medical student who's setting up for my board exam, but trust me, we know, so here's the deal. You sign up now and do one simple task for us, which we'll send to you in an email. We won't bother you again until you're over the hump. This will take maybe five to 10 minutes of your time at most. And since you're probably going to want something to listen to while studying for your boards, we will give you a free subscription of at least three months to our step one all audio cue bank. So if you're the first person for your, from your school, I repeat, if you are the first person from your school to sign up and do this one simple task for us related to social media and getting the word out, we will give you at least a three-month free subscription to our Step 1 all-audio question bank. We can't run this deal forever, so whoever joins between now and the end of the month of April 2018 is going to be eligible. If you're listening to this later, on the other hand, no worries. Still sign up, and we will give you first dibs later on when we try something similar. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing us. Thank you for supporting the Inside the Boards podcast. Now. Let's get to the show. All right, we're back with another StatMed lesson with Ryan Orwig, founder of thestatprogram.com. You can get a special offer just for ITB listeners and learn more about what Ryan's doing to help students by going to thestatprogram.com slash ITB. Ryan, the problem with doing volumes of questions but not improving seems universal. I hear it a lot. Students are like, you know, I did UWorld, I did USMLERX, I did Kaplan, I did like 6,000 questions, but my average percentage stays the same. I can't get any better. What's the reason for this? I think the conventional wisdom for boards prep 
is to do, like you just said, volumes and volumes and volumes of questions. That might be a combo of tutor mode, test mode, I don't know. That does seem to work for most USMLE and Comlex students, but I don't know what most means. Are we talking 95%? I don't think so. 55%? Probably, you know, probably more than that. Somewhere in between. It works. But what if it's not working for you? What if you're one of those med students who are sort of in this this perpetual cycle. And I think that the that's sort of the, the 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 wisdom that you'll find online. That's the accepted wisdom and advice from deans, but I don't like it. I don't think that the feedback is precise enough. So let's think about it like this. I think if I put a video camera on a student doing a timed practice test, what data is that going to give me? Uh, you know, apart from a raw score, uh, you know, it tell me three things. How long they're spending per question, how fidgety they are, and if they concretely, physically change their answer, like they click on A, then like, no, 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 let me click on B. You know, to me, that data is extremely superficial. And and for what we want with StatMed, ultimately, uh, that's that's useless. You know, it's useless for st- systemically changing process. That's too superficial. We want to dive down underneath the surface, okay? So if picking C is their decision, click, I pick C, I'm done, I miss it, or I get it right, I'm more interested in what what steps are being taken in route to making that decision. That's what we call the micro decisions. What micro decisions did they sort of make and go through in route to choosing C? What, what clues were they using from the passage? Did they use the right ones or did they not use the right clues? Did they twist a clue to make it fit a desired diagnosis? Uh, did they make a prediction that biased them? Did they sloppily read and weigh the answer options? Did they freak out because they didn't know 100% what the answer was? I mean, there are so many possibilities here. So whatever awareness students might have of those so-called micro decisions in the moment, I think some students might have awareness. Some of them don't even have an awareness that's so staticky and chaotic while they're in the question. Regardless, the specifics of those of that awareness is certainly gone for the ages shortly thereafter. So that's what we want to change with the StatMed Boards workshop. That's exactly what the workshop does. The process teaches students a way that's going to make them explicitly aware of and accountable for those micro decisions. Really, the heart of the StatMed process itself creates a detailed record of those micro decisions. We use that as the feedback loop to change their test-taking behavior. To learn more, go to the statprogram.com slash ITB. So next question here. A 30-year-old man comes to the clinic because of difficulty swallowing for the past week. Physical examination shows he is thin and tall in stature with long, skinny fingers. A barium swallow yields a colon with multiple diverticula, numerous (laughs) diverticuli. The mutation of which of the following genes is most closely associated with this patient's condition? Is it A, the FBN1 mutation, B, the MYC gene mutation, C, the RET gene mutation, or D, the P53 gene mutation? All right. What are we thinking here, Patrick? Well, when I read this vignette, the first thing I think is, okay, long, some, they said, Tall, thin, long, skinny fingers. This person almost certainly has Marfan syndrome or a Marfanoid body habit. Maybe they have homocystinuria. So I'd go with FBN1 mutation because I'm pretty sure that's associated with Marfan. Right. And you would be correct for making that leap. Oh, I don't know if it's a leap, but <laughs> uh, the answer is A, the FBN1 gene. 
And that encodes the fibrillin 1 protein. And I guess how? So Marfan syndrome is a connective tissue disorder, but in my mind, I want to know why. Like, why does a mutation in fibrillin 1 cause diverticulosis in the, the colon? Right. So, uh, you know, you think about fibrillin and it's a support I do uh, not. protein. I do not no, think you, about you, fibrillin ever. So when you're <laughs> studying for step one okay. <laughs> and you're thinking about the fibrillin one protein, you know that it's a connective tissue protein, right? Yes. That provides stability. The main function of it is to basically add support to elastin fibers as like a sheath process, right? Uh, yeah. See, that's what I was thinking, like elastin being yeah. problematic. So it's just a subcomponent of elastin. Right. So if we've got a messed up encasing of the elastin, now we're going to allow for anything involving these this collagen to be weakened and potentially create outpouchings. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So the elastin microfibrils are important in connective tissue. They're abundant in, you know, the body, but particularly where we see them are like large blood vessels like the aorta. Ah. Um, And then another one classic with Marfan's are the suspensory ligaments in the eye or the lens. Ah, okay. And specifically the upper portion of the lens, which is why you get the upward dislocation of the lens in Marfan's, right? I think so, the subluxation. Yeah. And then another place uh, that you might be able to attribute to Marfanoid habitus is there, it's uh, common in the periosteum as well. Okay. And that probably lengthens things somehow. Yeah, well, it's allowing for the bone to continue to grow. It, it's not, there's not steady encasement of the bone. Uh, I'm sure that's probably more complicated than I'm describing it. I'm sure it is too, but <laughs> like, again, we go back to that. Relying on heuristics when you're dealing with or need to deal with, you know, very complicated information. Oh, yeah. And as a reminder, the inheritance pattern for Marfan syndrome is autosomal dominant. Right. So you could potentially even have a genetics question with this where they're talking about, you know, the father has trouble seeing and is really tall. And then this child is needing glasses really early. And one of their brothers, you know, had heart failure at like a very young age kind of thing. Yeah. So going back to the image here, we have basically a colon with ton innumerable diverticuli and this is because you don't have this fibrillin protecting the elastin there's outpouching as you might have in any you know when there's excess pressure in the system uh, and these diverticuli get formed it's the same way that you might have an aneurysm occurring in the uh, aorta, aorta. <laughs> all right yeah that that all see that kind of makes sense i wish we just taught it this way instead of using all these scientific terms and fibrillins and elastins and, you know, just break it down for me so I can remember it on a test. That's what I want. Right. Right. We're not really focusing on it. There are a couple other uh, disorders that are really related to the diverticuli. Another good one is Ehlers-Danlos, since uh, that's going to have this uh, defect instead of the fibrillin, it's in the elastin. 
we're talking about Marfans. And then uh, another example is in scleroderma. Okay, so scleroderma and Marfan syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos, you can bank on those having a higher incidence of uh, multiple colonic diverticula. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's move on. Let's do one more. Yeah, sure. Okay, a 30-year-old woman who plays tennis presents in clinic for evaluation of her current shoulder subluxation. She reports that she's always been flexible and can hyperextend her knees and elbows. She has self-managed her shoulder issues until now, but she worries that they might shorten her career. In addition, she has noticed that her skin bruises and splits easily, taking a long time to heal. Friends comment that her skin is unusually stretchy, but she thinks that her skin type simply runs in the family. Which of the following cardiovascular findings is most likely to be present upon physical examination? Let me just say, like, on the test... Everybody's going to have these moments. You're going to read this and you're going to be so excited, right? You're like, ah, sweet. This is Ehlers-Danlos for sure, right? And then you get (laughs) that interrogatory. (laughs) Which of the following cardiovascular findings is most likely to be present upon physical examination? So this is one reason why I think people probably should read the interrogatory first. If you don't have a system that you're applying, find yourself making dumb mistakes, in other words, when you go back to review the practice questions you've done, implement some system. An easy one is just to start with read the interrogatory first, then go back to the vignette looking for clues related to that interrogatory. And then if you can, don't spend a ton of time on it, but use the cover the answers test, which is a requirement of all good boards style questions that if you cover the answers and all you have is the vignette and the interrogatory, you should be able to arrive at an answer, right? There should be enough information there. So I think this is helpful because let's say you do that and you get to this is Ehlers-Danlos and it's going to be which of the following cardiovascular findings. If you haven't looked at the answers yet, you don't know if they're going to be listing like various defects in parts of the heart or vessels, whether it's going to be a, a physical examination related cardiovascular finding. But if you can start formulating what that actually is, if you actually know, it can help, I think, prevent you from choosing a, a wrong option based on, I guess, reflex or uh, a sense of urgency and need to move on. And it may help if you can't narrow things down to at least eliminate some of the answer choices. So I hear Ehlers-Danlos and I'm thinking, don't they have prolapse mitral valve? Yeah, mitral valve prolapse. (laughs) Thank you. I was trying to remember what it was called. So that's, that's as much knowledge as I have without looking at the answer choices. So then I'd be looking for mitral valve prolapse and prior to even looking at those choices i'm like all i remember with mitral valve prolapse is something about a a click a mid-systolic click i hope that's true so answer choices here are i'll let you go through them all right so we have a a continuous machine-like murmur b a crescendo late systolic murmur with a mid-systolic click c a crescendo-decrescendo systolic ejection murmur that radiates to the carotids, 
or D, a high-pitched holosystolic murmur that radiates to the axilla? All right, see, I would go just based on mid-systolic click, answer B. Oh, yeah. All right, so that's the correct answer? It is. Mm -hmm. You would be right. All right, so this brings up all this sort of why questions that I have in my mind that really perplex me as like a first-year medical student. I wanted to be able to to be able then to explain why you get a mid-systolic click and why it sounds like a crescendoing murmur in late systole. I don't think I could do that now. And maybe if I really tried to like think through that, but I guess what is important to say is sometimes you don't necessarily need that level of knowledge, right? You can arrive at the answer depending on how difficult the question is constructed uh, without having all the information or knowing everything about uh, this particular condition. Now, if you had a bunch of answer choices that also had included a mid-systolic click, I would have been a little sad because then I would not have been able to have helped myself all that much. Um, right. So unless you're able to do that, can you help me think of this like a second-year medical mm-hmm. student? Oh, I mean, I'm going along the same kind of route that you are. You know, I read this vignette, it screams Ehlers-Danlos, and I know that the mitral valve prolapse and aortic dilatation are two of the findings that you can have with Ehlers-Danlos. So I'm probably going to get to the answer choice here and be looking for those kinds of complications, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, this question doesn't, it's not, you're, you immediately are like, oh, mitral valve prolapse, mid-systolic click. And now hopefully every, all of our listeners have that down too, but that, that actually brings up an extra order to this question, right? Yeah. Because you need to know that that goes with our mitral valve prolapse. And it, it's probably a heuristic, but I basically think of, the, the mitral valve is like a big parachute, and when the ventricle contracts, the high pressure sends the mitral valve up into the atria, and when it snaps open, it causes that click sound, right? Sure. I, <laughs> sure. I would fixate on the like mid-sisley portion, though, honestly, in that explanation. like It's a heuristic, so you can ignore portions of how you're remembering this, I think. But like, why does it happen mid-systole? Because it takes just that long for the uh, leaflets to go up into the atria or something? First, you have to have your isovolumetric contraction. Mm, So the pressure has to get up high enough. and, And that takes a second, right? I'd buy that. That sounds great. So there you have it. A, how to put this, um, a meandering oh, way. Oh, no, that to doesn't ex- work. That, that doesn't, doesn't work? work. Right, no. Scratch that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think how we could best, better describe that, right? Well, um, actually, I would say this. As we go through these questions uh, for the Study Smarter series this year, this is the exact type of feedback we would like to hear from you. In, in my mind, I don't think I'm being entirely crazy, but I think that there's a lot that I learned uh, about taking exams and approaching questions as a, a question writer and editor such that I don't worry so much nowadays. Well, obviously, because I don't have to take step one again. But also, like when I read these, I'm not so concerned with being able to understand and articulate all of the physiology. 
And is it helpful if I'm far away from uh, step one to approach questions like that with Stuart? Or do you guys want us to be able to explain to you in terse, succinct ways the physiology or the questions that arise from our dissections of these questions? If it doesn't matter, don't send us any emails. If you have strong opinions, though, you would uh, like the approach where we, we don't try to prep too much for these things and see if we can get to the answers without doing that. And when I say we, I mean mostly me, because Stuart is actually preparing for step one. But, uh, I'm going to prep. Yeah, yeah he, he's going to prep. But if you like that, that kind of approach where we just see where we can get through reasoning and um, the elements of the question, that's kind of what I would favor. Um, but if it is something that burns in your mind when you're done listening to a show and you really want a little more um, breadth of uh, presentation, then please reach out to us at podcast at insidetheboards.com. All right. What else about Ellers Denlow? Sorry for that tangent. Well, you know, I think the vignette really highlights the uh, basic findings. Uh, so the flexible joints, the stretchy skin. very stretchy, thin skin and fragility. So they, they even bruise easily. Uh, and I think the important part here is that it's a defect in collagen synthesis. Mm hmm. This says here that it's a defect in collagen type 5. But However, it's also can, type three. 3. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I'm just going to avoid that a little bit here. <laughs> and um, probably because of the complexity of the genetics of Ehlers-Danlos, as well as the fact that it can affect either a lot or just a little, multiple different types of collagen, you're not going to be expected to memorize and know in detail um, all of the info uh, related to each subtype of Ehlers-Danlos, um, in, in my mind. Maybe you will be. I, I, obviously, I don't speak for uh, the National Board of Medical Examiners, um, but in my mind as well, I'd be like, I will never be able to remember all that stuff, and I can't think of a way to learn it in a way that uh, my understanding would help me reason through the various subtypes, um, it would be a matter of memorizing this is a defect in collagen, you know, two or three or four or five. Yeah, and I would be worried. Uh, you know, here again, I'm thinking I'm going to focus more on the elastin gene, uh, the the clinical findings and the possible complications here, uh, and less on the genetics other than... Um, other than it's dealing with the collagen synthesis. Okay. And I, I think that's like totally, totally uh, and, reasonable. And the and boards manageable. are not, oh yeah, it's definitely more manageable if you do it, think about it that way. Um, but, it, you know, I haven't really gotten a question that's asked me to delineate which of the collagens it is. And if it does, it doesn't include both. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's what the board... Like, you may feel like you're being tricked um, on an exam, but but you really aren't. These, these questions, as soon as you dispel that conviction from your mind um, that I'm not being tricked, I think you can approach the test more on its terms. And it's still difficult, but the difficulty comes with the amount of information you need to know and the ability that you have to... 
you know, differentiate similar things from one another. So that's Ehlers-Danlos, the classical type. There are a bunch of different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which involve particular defects in collagen. It's probably not necessary to know exactly which type of collagen, because there are 13 types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and some of them involve a defect of one kind or another in collagen 1, others in collagen 3, um, others in probably other collagen types, and hence, too, why collagen vascular disease is kind of a wastebasket category for all sorts of things. But I guess while we're on the subject, it probably is helpful to remember, if you don't already, a few high-yield facts about some of the collagens. So type 1 collagen, there's a defect there in which disease? That's osteogenesis imperfecta. Absolutely. Uh, That's going to be with bones and tendons, right? Yep. Brittle bones, autosomal dominant in most cases. Patients have multiple fractures with minimal force and classically that blue scleral hue due to the translucency of the connective tissue over the, the, the choroid with the deficient collagen. Type 2 collagen is spongy absorb shock, so it's found in cartilage and the nucleus pulposus of the vertebral disc. I can't think of a particular syndrome that's a result of defective type 2, but I imagine that the pathophysiology of uh, disc herniation or some like joint diseases that involve cartilage breakdown are a result of a type 2 collagen synthesis or or a defect. Type 3 collagen, that's in the blood vessels and skin, like you mentioned, that uh, is its component is made up of reticulin, right? And defective type 3 collagen you see in forms of Ehlers-Danlos and associated with, as well, joint dislocation, aneurysms, organ ruptures. Type 4 collagen is the basement membrane stuff, which kidneys, that's a good place to think about it, or, or skin. So you can have defective type 4 collagen in Alport syndrome, which is a uh, disease that causes both kidney disease, like hereditary, uh, like a progressive uh, nephritis, nephritis and, um, and deafness. That's how I remember Alport. Um, and blindness, I think. And blindness, okay. And that makes sense. Or, yeah, poor vision. Yes, visual uh, visual difficulties. And then Goodpaster's syndrome involves an autoantibody against type 4 uh, collagen in the, right. the lungs and uh, glomeruli. So that's why patients get the hemoptysis and uh, glomerular nephritis. So, all right, anything else about collagen or should we just like get out of biochemistry and move on to something else? <laughs> sure, yeah, I think we've uh, hit it for, you know, what it's, what it's worth. worth. All right. Well, you can get more high yield uh, questions in an audio format with the ITB All Audio Q Bank. The step one version of the product has content from both Osmosis and Lecturio. Just go to insidetheboards.com to learn more. And thank you for sharing the podcast and especially our Study Smarter series with your friends. And happy studying. Let us know how we can help you. Reach out to us. 
podcast at insidetheboards.com. Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> Thanks. See ya. All right. That's it for biochemistry. I just wanted to say thank you to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off their album, The Mind Sweep. To hear some more of their music, go to entershikari.com or find them on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. 